Dr. Morgan here, and this episode is near and dear to my heart as I am no stranger to the experience of postpartum depression and anxiety. I feel for myself looking back on those experiences and have immense compassion for those going through the dark times. Postpartum depression and anxiety unfortunately affect as many as one in seven or eight women. And we are here today to tease out five possible root causes so that in case these are a component in your story, you have a path to walk on towards finding yourself again. Some of these are really easily missed by improper lab orders or are commonly mistaken as normal symptoms of life with a new baby. But we know that there's a different way, a way where you can enjoy motherhood feeling like yourself, even through the tough times. We are here for you and hope this episode helps. Welcome to Healthy as a Mother, the podcast for becoming and being a mother with your co-hosts, Dr. Leah Gordon and Dr. Morgan McDermott, two naturopathic doctors who get it. Each week, we teach you how to be the healthiest mother you can be, from fertility and preconception to pregnancy and birth prep, through postpartum and throughout motherhood, empowering you with the natural health guidance and education you're not getting elsewhere so you can confidently navigate the broken system at large. The real, the raw, the untalked about. And remember, this information is not intended to diagnose, treat, or manage any disease. Always consult with your doctor before making any changes. I am so excited to talk with you, Dr. Morgan, today about this topic because postpartum depression and anxiety is something that plagues so many women, and I don't feel that they are getting the support that they need. And, you know, the conventional model doesn't really have much other than, you know, antidepressants. And I think a lot of women feel lost. And so why don't you walk us through some of the contributing factors that contribute to this and see if we can help some women? Yeah, absolutely. So it's Maternal Mental Health Month in May as well. And so it's a it's a timely episode, but that doesn't mean that we only need to talk about it one month out of the year because it's happening to people all around the world every second of every day. So we're going to talk about the top five contributing, well, not maybe the top five, but top big things that you need to be thinking about or talking about with your doctor that are often maybe sly, covert. They kind of nobody really thinks about how these little things can contribute. And like with any illness or um, issue that people are experiencing, it's never usually 100% anything. It's like Mm -hmm. 10% this, 15% that, 60% this. And so if we can kind of knock out some of those cogs in the wheel and explain some of this stuff today, and maybe it'll help with even just the symptom expression or the way that it feels, the heaviness of the mental illness for the particular person, then, you know, we've done our job. We've definitely helped things, but, um, a lot of this is just not really considered. And so people, like you said, are left in the dust. They go back to their six week postpartum appointment and maybe they are complaining to the doctor. And really the only thing that they have for them is medication. And it sometimes isn't getting to the root cause. It's actually completely Mm -hmm. missing the root cause. Maybe it does feel better for symptoms and maybe people need that for that period of time and that's fine, but it, there are usually reasons. And so we want to talk about some of those reasons today. So great. we're going to talk about, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just said, great. It's great. Good cool. job. <laughs> great. Doing great. Great. Awesome. <laughs> okay. So baby blues versus depression. I just wanted to mm-hmm. clarify what the difference there is. So baby blues, which is, is actually very common. It affects 50 to 80% of all new moms. And it happens usually on day like like it's very early on. It's from days like three to two weeks or something mm-hmm. like that. It's very, very early. And it's a lot of feelings of side of sadness or weepiness, crying at easy things at things that they wouldn't have cried at beforehand, you know, more easily feeling irritated, maybe feeling overwhelmed and trapped. 
but the feelings dissipate. And that's key because with postpartum depression or anxiety, they don't, they last longer. And so postpartum or, uh, sorry, baby blues, think of that as just being sort of an immediate thing. It's, it's more temporary and, um, is mostly about, is mostly just like a big rush of emotion. It could be anger or sadness, but it doesn't mm-hmm. have some of the qualities that other, the other qualities the postpartum depression has. So whereas postpartum depression happens a little bit later on and it can happen between three and six or four, the length of p- period is between three and six months or even longer. Some people can have it for a year or more. So they um, can have it for that long. Yes, they have it for that long. And where it begins, I, I mean, I was trying to find some statistics if there was information on that, but I think that it's, there's not really, it's, it's usually not in that very, very early postpartum period though. So that's mm-hmm. all we have really to go off of. But I would say in my experience from what I've seen in patients and clients, I would say on the early end, starting around like two months. So mm-hmm. it's something that is going to take a little bit of time to develop. Mm-hmm. Same thing with postpartum anxiety. So there's there's a lot more people experiencing postpartum depression than anxiety. And there are other maternal mental health disorders like postpartum OCD and psychosis. Um, and we're not going to talk about those specifically because they are a little bit less common. It's not that they're less important, but we're trying to cast the net and reach as many people as we can. So talking about kind of the top two right now. And actually, when I was going through postpartum anxiety, I didn't even know what it was. So mm-hmm. I feel like there's been a lot more conversation about it in the recent years, which is good because beforehand, it was pretty much only postpartum depression, I feel like, that anyone ever heard about. So um, postpartum depression, some other just statistics that I thought were interesting, is that 50% of partners of a mother who is diagnosed with postpartum depression will experience some level of depression. Oh, interesting. Yes. <laughs> I thought that was fascinating. Huh. And you know, depression sort of has this energy of staying in the past or maybe staying in stuck in thoughts of that what is right now is not what you want or is not mm-hmm. something that you like to happen. Whereas anxiety is thoughts into the future and worry and anticipating bad things happening and that sort of an energy or a vibe or a feel. There mm-hmm. is definitely a lot of other constellation of symptoms that go along with these that are not just that. But I like that kind of distinction because one of them is almost like stuck in the past mm-hmm. or, or ruminating that things are not necessarily the way they want them to be. One of them is looking into the future. Neither of them are in the present. Mm-hmm. Just And being in the present when you have a new little baby and you're very overwhelmed is really hard. So I understand why people shunt one direction or another. It's yeah. very difficult to be in the present. Yeah. Um, you know, and it just happens. It, it does like happen to you to an extent. Yes, there is lots of contributing factors, but even the people who are really well supported can sometimes, you know, things can feel, it, it can be triggering deeper things that like no one could be able to even uncover. So I don't mm-hmm. want it to feel like there's, you know, oh, you're doing these five things wrong. And so that's why this is happening to you. You know, like there's, there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And um, in anthropology and other cultures often think about, and this is something we're not going to talk about today, but I think is really fascinating <laughs> is that mm-hmm. throughout history, there is a sensitivity and openness in the spiritual realm when a woman mm-hmm. gives birth. And that there is this period where she can be kind of like inhabited or like taken oh, over. I totally believe yes, that. by something that's negative and that's not yes. of her. 
Oh, that makes total sense yeah, because you just doesn't it? Yes, for the way that I understand the world, like keeping your vibration at a high level, you know, whether that's going to church or praying or meditating or, you know, just, you know, bringing in calling in your angels or guides or whatever the things are that you do to stay in a high vibration is what you know, can keep Keeps you lower, safe lower energies away from you. And I actually think depression, especially the rampantness of it right now is, is largely that. Um, and so I never even thought about that, but that makes sense because you just did open up that portal of life that you just brought a life into the world. Oh, Morgan, that's totally true. And you're, yeah, I mean, this is not me like making this up right now. So don't give <laughs> you're me so smart. It, <laughs> I'm so smart in relying what the anthropology books say. Yes. <laughs> But yes, it's it it is a thought, and you know some people will say, well, that's just the way that their worldview was. So da da da, and it's like, yeah, okay, okay, whatever. But I do think that it's interesting to consider, mm-hmm. and depending on your worldview and your spiritual view, that might be part of a factor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just and- like to talk about the whole world, the whole well-rounded idea of it, because why not? Maybe for some people like you just now, mm-hmm. something like that will click, and they'll go, oh my goodness, like you know, I need to go to my energy healer, I need to go to church, I need to whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Anyways, okay, so postpartum anxiety, just a couple of little quick stats. It's a, a fewer, uh, a less stat. So with postpartum depression, it's like a 20 to 30% um, rate that it's happening. With postpartum anxiety, it's a 17%, kind of an odd number. But mm-hmm. um, then there's this correlation where 75% of the women who do have postpartum depression will also have some level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And um, the anxiety, so, oh, yeah, I just wanted to kind of – Pop in here with my experience of some of the way that that this looked because this episode we're not going to talk about all the symptoms, but I do have in the show notes a couple of resources and links to learn what are the symptoms, what's a screening test that I can take so I can learn about this. But I did just want to talk about well, people are like, yeah, okay, of course you're anxious, you have a new baby. Yeah. It's like no, well, it's a little different. Like postpartum anxiety can really manifest in like intrusive thoughts pictures before your eyes, like really illogical things that mm-hmm. just cannot possibly happen that in your normal state, you would never be thinking about what happened, but they become very real to you. So like when I had my son and I was experiencing this, <laughs> if you live in San Diego, if you've ever been to San Diego or the San Diego airport, you know, the way the planes fly really close to the buildings downtown. Mm-hmm. One time I was driving, this is just an example of like something that happened to me is I was driving and I was coming up on like an area where the plane was going to fly right over me. And I was convinced, I was 100% convinced the plane was going to hit the freeway and my car was just, I wasn't gonna be able to stop in time, of course, but I wasn't going to get hit by the plane, but I was just going to drive off into the big hole that it created and die. And and this is so quick, but I saw it. I saw it all happen before my eyes. My eyes are open. I'm driving on the freeway. It's not like my eyes were closed, but I had this quick thought of like, that's so sad because Wes isn't going to know that I died for like hours. And I was running some kind of a quick errand, you know, I was like, and Mm -hmm. I didn't have Gage in the car with me. And I was like, man, that is just going to be the worst because hopefully my body is even like distinguishable. And like, he's just never going to have said goodbye to me. And I mean, I had, it's so fast. And I was Mm -hmm. so in that thought. Like, I remember that very clearly. I also remember another time pushing Gage down in a stroller with one of our friends in LA. And we had just gotten some ice cream and it was nighttime and we were walking in this like really busy downtown cool happening place. And no, not downtown LA, sorry, like a like Santa Monica or something. Mm-hmm. And there was this woman walking on the sidewalk up to me, probably walking to get ice cream. <laughs> I was like, we were going to have to pass each other. And in my mind, I was like, she's going to stab me. 
like a hundred percent. I braced my body. Like I braced my stomach as I walked by her. Cause I was like, I'm going to get stabbed right now. I hope it doesn't hit anything major. And oh my, my friend is going to take me right to the hospital and I'm going to be okay. Like, but I had those sorts of thoughts, you know, or, um, mm. in another way, like the anxiety can present where you're really not connected to reality. Like I very much thought that my son had something wrong with him developmentally, that mm-hmm. he wouldn't look me in the eyes. He wasn't responding to me. He really was only responding to my husband. And I think there was a level of that where I just didn't feel bonded to him for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, in being in medical school as well, like I was like, oh my gosh, I, he has autism. And I remembered feeling like I couldn't sleep in all the way. I couldn't sleep in towards like, you know, seven o'clock or whatever normal time to wake up because I needed to wake up early, like at 4 a.m. so that I could start researching early autism intervention mm-hmm. and I could start putting him into treatment like right away. And, you know, things like that. Like, so yeah. I would wake up in the night and feel like it's irresponsible for me to go back to sleep right now because I need to research things for my baby. Like those are examples of some of the thoughts. Which can be so tricky because sometimes in the natural medicine world, those behaviors are not like, it would be tricky to know what is a realm of normal, especially being a doctor. I remember when you were going through that, you know, and we're so used to researching things and doing stuff. And I didn't know what it was like to have a new baby. You were like my first close friend who had a baby and I thought that was just postpartum. I just thought, oh, well, once you have a baby, you're going to be freaking out about everything. You know, I just (laughs) thought that because you were my example of that. It wasn't until years later that I realized, oh my gosh, you were struggling with postpartum anxiety. And I feel so bad that I didn't know how to support you then. But, you know, it can be really sneaky sometimes. Yeah, I didn't even know. So for me, my experience was at some point when he was around 10 months postpartum, I literally like looked myself in the mirror one time, which I had done, you know, every day to put makeup on and get ready for school and whatever. But it was like, all of a sudden I was actually looking at myself again. And I was like, oh my God. And I was like, oh, hi. But I didn't know that I had been gone. Does that yes, make sense? Like, yes. Yes. So I was standing there and I was like, oh my gosh, wait, where have I been? Like what? Is-? And I remembered too, like around that time I was singing to songs in the car again. I was having mm-hmm. sex dreams again, like things that had been gone from my life were mm-hmm. starting to come back. And wow. I, and I truly, it was like I had been in some kind of like a foggy cloud or something because I just didn't even know that it happened. It was insidious. I didn't know that what I was thinking and feeling was abnormal. I just thought mm-hmm. I was in it. I was in it so deep. And it was my personal responsibility to be the medical one because that's what I was in. I was in medical school. And my husband, like, you know, bless his soul, but he's not going to know those kinds of things. So mm-hmm. I have to take all of that responsibility on. And anyway, so that can be a different kind of way. Like you're not necessarily crying and sad all the time, although there is that. Mm-hmm. Another element of postpartum anxiety that is not talked about is the rage mm-hmm. and the anger. And so sometimes people call it a whole different thing. They'll call it postpartum rage. Um, but it is an element of postpartum anxiety as well, where there's like mm. these flamey bursts of anger and big outbursts kind of a thing. And um, some people like to, you know, there's so many different ways to think about emotions. And uh, somebody told me once that anger is from a, a feeling of like violation. Mm. You're being violated in some way, like that you're, maybe your needs are being violated, like with sleep. Mm-hmm. So postpartum anger can come up specifically in the middle of the night when your baby wakes up yet again and you're like, yeah. oh my God, I cannot wake mm-hmm. up with you one more time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's a violation of your basic needs. Mm. Um, so anyways, this, this is, we could talk about this for like an entire episode, but I do want to get to the, the meat of it. But you have some really interesting 
contributions to anxiety. We had talked about this last week on the phone about a patient and when we were consulting. And I just wanted to you to kind of talk about some other ways or other etiologies for anxiety before we kind of get into our top five. Yeah. So basically anxiety and depression, same in the sense that oftentimes these are symptoms of something deeper that's going on. And we're going to touch on some of these contributing factors, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's a personality trait. Like you shared with me a patient who was told by her doctor that she shouldn't try to have children because she had anxiety. And that to me is very sad because it doesn't mean, it's not like saying, oh, you can't have children because you're missing one arm, you know, something that you can't replace that even though you could, I guess, you know, get bionic arms. Like there's things like that, but you know what I mean in the sense that this is a side effect that something underlying is is happening. And with that, there are genetic susceptibilities to anxiety and depression, especially if it runs in the family, you know, so taking a, a look at were aunts, cousins, moms, sisters, did they have anxiety, depression um, at all, either before pregnancy or during or, or postpartum, you know, it can all be a sign of genetic stuff. And there are still things though, even if you have genetic predispositions, taking some of these actions with your lifestyle and even supplementation and other things can help mitigate that. Just to point out one example is COMT. COMT is a gene that if you don't have good genetic functioning of that, you can have a hard time breaking down the hormones that are made in anxiety. And uh, that is a common cause for anxiety or a contributor to anxiety for people. But your genes are not your destiny. Just because you might have some of these doesn't mean it's 100% guaranteed that you will. For example, I have homozygous, meaning two gene issues with COMT. Um, but I take all of these steps that we're going to talk about today very seriously. And they are a top priority of my life almost on the daily. And I don't, I didn't experience a lot of postpartum depression or anxiety. And so it doesn't mean that you're doomed if it's your genes. So I just want to highlight that, you know, sometimes it's not anything that you can do. Sometimes you just have certain things and they can contribute or it makes it harder for you to kind of, you know, mitigate, but that also you have a lot of power and control over these situations. And there's a lot of things that you can do about it. Absolutely. There's certain predispositions that may make you have to fight harder. Yes. And it's good to know if that's mm-hmm. the case. And yeah. we need to be more diligent and uh, more compliant. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's all empowering information to have anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the things that we're going to talk about today are anemia, thyroid problems, blood sugar regulation, sleep deprivation, and then lack of overall support. So mm-hmm. let's go ahead and just start to break these down. So number one, anemia. Anemia people think about is really common in pregnancy because your blood volume is increasing so dramatically. And there's a certain level of that that is normal because if you're adjusting for an increased blood volume, you're not going to have as many red blood cells. The hemoglobin and hematocrit numbers will drop. Mm-hmm. But there is a little, there is a, a, a common um, pathology though during pregnancy as well, which is when we you actually do get truly anemic and you should mm-hmm. be taking some iron, et cetera, et cetera. Now with postpartum, if you have a lo- big blood loss, with hemorrhage. This is something that definitely needs to be on the top of your mind, your doctor, your partner, somebody's mind to, for many different reasons. I mean, being anemic means that your, all your tissues, your brain, all your organs are not getting optimal oxygenation. Mm -hmm. And so this can affect things when you are now put up against this situation of increased stress and 
sleep depri- deprivation and all of these factors that are not that are outside of the realm of your normal living mm-hmm. if you're nursing and then you're recovering from birth as well and your body really needs a good adequate amount of <laughs> oxygenation mm-hmm. and so some of the common um, symptoms associated with anemia in general can be anxiety and depression irritability fatigue a lot mm-hmm. of these things that either contribute where it's you know chicken or the egg being fatigued right. all the time can make you feel depressed mm-hmm. um and then also just the way that your whole system, all of your biochemical reactions are not going to be op- functioning optimally when they don't have proper oxygenation. So this is a baseline. When you're going to go get some labs to find out if you're anemic or not, hemoglobin and hematocrit are not adequate to assess full, fully if you are anemic or not. And mm-hmm. so um, it would be suggested by us to get an entire full iron panel. That would include things like a total iron, iron saturation, something called a TIBC, which is total iron binding capacity, and then a ferritin. Ferritin's often an add-on. You have to ask for it. It's not going to be part of a regular iron panel, and it's a long-term iron storage marker. Mm-hmm. Ferritin's also interesting because if it's too high, mm-hmm. it can be in, a marker of inflammation. Yeah, And inflammation is not a good sign. And you know, we can – not that inflammation causes anxiety and depression in that way, but they're it can. They yeah. are definitely correlated, correlated, actually. A lot of studies are now showing that depression's root cause might actually be inflammation. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Inflammation in the brain specifically or anything? So inflammation in the body leads to inflammation in the brain leads to anxiety, depression. Yeah. Very oh fascinating. Gosh. New oh stuff to unpack there. And the one thing I want to say about iron is it is important to run both. Um, I've been dealing with some inflammatory issues myself just because of some various things that we'll talk about in another episode, but I ran a ferritin and a serum iron recently on myself. And if I hadn't ran the serum iron, my hemoglobin and hematocrit are obviously fine. My ferritin was, it looked great, but my serum iron was lower. So what that tells me is my ferritin looking great was actually probably from inflammation and I actually need more iron. So it's important to run all of these, these tests. So if, you know, your doctor's like, oh, I don't want to do it. Like it, it really gives you this whole picture. The other thing I want to say about iron is I'm a huge fan of needed. You are as well. They're Mm -hmm. my favorite prenatal company. I helped design their prenatal. We specifically chose to not include iron in the core prenatal. Some women don't need iron all the time. Some women need to dose it differently. And so if you are pregnant and or postpartum, you need to take iron separate if you are taking the needed prenatal. It's like my public service announcement um, because it's not included in the, the the core prenatal. And I don't think a lot of women realize that. So just know and that that's a separate is. item. Mm-hmm. Yes, it often is in prenatals. And so you need to be checking or supplementing yeah. in some form. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just that's assume because it's a prenatal that there's iron in it. That's a good point. And then back to lab testing. If your doctor is refusing to run the labs that you want to run, either A, get a new doctor, <laughs> or B, advocate really hard for yourself, or C, you can use something like Ultra Labs. Mm-hmm. It's like ultralabtest.com to yeah. run your own panel. Although, if you don't know what you're looking at, that's not all that helpful. It, you know, you'll get the panel back, but do you know those kinds of little subtleties about mm-hmm. That you're, if your total iron is low, but your ferritin's looking okay, then that actually means that you <laughs> need more. So, I mean, not to like, you know, insult anybody, but I'm just saying that think about that ahead of time. Like, if you're going to go ahead and go get your own labs, who's going to help you interpret them? Because if there's somebody you can work with, then that's great. Yeah. Um, okay. And I, so, and I also have a free guide on my website, womanhoodwellness.com slash labs that you can download and it tells you the optimal lab ranges for a bunch of things I recommend. So, in case you wanted to see kind of optimal ranges, that's on there. 
Beautiful. Actually, everybody really should go do that because the lab ranges wildly vary lab to lab. Mm-hmm. Second of all, they're like the base minimal. It's almost like the RDW on mm-hmm. packaged foods, you know, like which is the recommended daily RDA. RDA. Yeah. RDA, RDA. allowance. Yeah. <laughs> For okay. Allowance has a W in it. <laughs> allowance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, where is the W? Am I thinking of, oh, I'm thinking of RDW. That's on a CBC. Oh, <laughs> that's so okay. Funny. There's so many acronyms. That's red blood cell distribution something, something. Okay, anyways. Um, so what was I saying? Oh, the standard lab values that you're going to see are just not, I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's just not good, you guys. So you need to be looking at a functional. Sometimes they're called functional. Sometimes they're called optimal, whatever it's called. You need to be looking at different ranges. So unfortunately it's more work for you, but it's, it's really important. So mm-hmm. that's, that's one thing to think about. Now, the second thing to think about is thyroid problems. Mm-hmm. And some people are going to roll their eyes or they're going to be like, I've never had thyroid problems in my life, or there's nobody <laughs> in my family who has thyroid problems. And it's like, okay, great. That's good for you. And <laughs> just know that Along with the huge drop in estrogen and progesterone and all of the hormones when you have a baby, your thyroid changes dramatically. Mm-hmm. Some people handle this change very well and their thyroid kind of changes really fast and then bounces back and is fine. Some people don't. And mm-hmm. if you have any predisposition to Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid thyroiditis, or even just non-autoimmune, but a hypothyroid, anything you can be one of the people that falls into that subcategory where you your body doesn't handle that big drop and bounce back quicker, you mm-hmm. know, or quickly or even at all. And so there's a, a common postpartum issue that's called postpartum thyroiditis that is it presents as a hyperthyroid initially. Mm-hmm. So hyperthyroid meaning that the thyroid is inflamed and it's functioning too much. Yeah. And there, there is an autoantibody aspect to it. So that means that it is an autoimmune presentation. It's not Graves' disease because it's temporary and it will, will then morph into hypothyroidism, mm-hmm. usually Hashimoto's, which is the autoimmune. So it's almost like you have this autoimmune trigger beginning of hyper and then it flips into hypo. Mm-hmm. So the tricky part here is that these symptoms, listen to this. So the symptoms that are usually coming on with the initial postpartum thyroiditis happen between one and four months postpartum. They can happen for about one to three months. And they're things like racing heart rate, jitteriness, insomnia, anxiety, irritability, (laughs) anger, Mm -hmm. things that are pretty common when you have a new baby and you're trying to adjust to life. So sometimes Mm -hmm. people miss this. Yeah. Okay. Also weight loss, which I mean, a lot of people are losing weight pretty quickly Mm -hmm. in that at some point in there, or maybe not, but I mean, it's, it is a thing that can happen and people are like, oh, I'm just chugging along. I'm just breastfeeding. That's why I'm I'm losing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But then after that period of time, it flips into this hypothyroid where now your, your thyroid is sluggish. It's not creating enough thyroid hormone, which is important for almost every single function in your body. And those symptoms look like fatigue, inability to lose weight or even weight gain hair loss, mm-hmm. <laughs> constipation, and dry skin. So things also that are commonly attributed to just being postpartum. Mm-hmm. And so this can be really tricky if you're mm-hmm. a practitioner, if you're, first of all, if you're even seeing a practitioner, which most people see their practitioner at six weeks and that's it, which is mm-hmm. absolutely infuriating, but that yep. is the way that it goes. <laughs> and so this needs to be on the mind of everybody to be your own health advocate because nobody else is going to be watching this for you. Mm-hmm. So when you're assessing your thyroid, it's not just your TSH. So TSH is their thyroid stimulating hormone. That is what a conventional doctor will probably run for you. It'll probably be, maybe it's like 2.5, which we would consider still too high, but 
they'd be like, it's fine because it's less than five. Yeah, I know. So. <laughs> which, which five, anything getting close to five is a really big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that it's in the hypothyroid picture. Hyper would be getting lower and lower, your TSH being like, you know, 0.001 or something. Mm-hmm. But you need to be also running free and total fractions of free T3, free T4, total T3, total T4. Mm-hmm. Then as well, a reverse T3, which is an inflammation marker and can kind of in constellation with some of the other markers point us in the picture of what's happening incorrectly. Mm-hmm. And then also antibodies. So mm-hmm. the TPO and TG antibodies. This is probably in your lab guide, I'm guessing. It so, is. It is. So great. if anyone's like, what are you saying? Um, definitely yeah. check that out. I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Yes. Um, so, or you, yeah, exactly. That'll be great because people need to really be advocating when you're going to go and you can't just trust that your doctor, if you say, can you order a full thyroid panel for me? They might be like, sure. And they're going to order TSH and T4. Mm-hmm. And that's just not enough. Yeah. So we need to be looking at the whole thing to see that this is a, if this is affecting you and your mm-hmm. postpartum recovery, health experience, everything. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, number three on the list is blood sugar regulation. So breastfeeding requires far more extra nutrition than pregnancy. And I feel like a lot of people have a hard time with this because they really want to lose pregnancy weight, yep. get back to their body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I get it. I get that. And you will suffer at some point or you will have to stop breastfeeding because your body will just crap out on you. You will not thrive. We have to be eating four meals a day for months or three big meals and two snacks. You know, it's, it's a non-negotiable in my mind. Yep. Society makes this very difficult. We have a whole episode about this with Dr. Sarah Kelly. We're not going to go there right now, but anyways, so this is an area where most women are really lacking is that is staying up on that postpartum nu- nutrition. So maybe they did something beautiful and wonderful and smart, like make a meal train. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so beautiful and wonderful. And so smart. beautiful and wonderful and smart. <laughs> I mean, there's a couple other ways to do it. You don't have to use mealtrain.com. You can use takethemameal.com or maybe it's called bring them a meal. Either way, or just have, you know, prepped a lot of frozen food that you've already made during your pregnancy. And so you have a lot of food on hand. Um, also, I just want to side note here really quick because I remember having this conversation with you and me and Dr. Ari Calhoun, mm-hmm. who's on one of our episodes as well about neurodevelopment in pregnancy, talk, sitting on the couch when she was recently pregnant with Maya and talking about my what I thought motherhood was going to be like mm-hmm. and how I would look at people who I felt like were doing things wrong and being like, they're just not doing it good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and like, if you're having a hard time with this or that or the other, like, you're just not, you're like, do better, you know? Mm-hmm. And because she, she was, you know, having a big feeling about like, well, what is this going to mean? Da, da, da. And I was like, I know, girl, like, I, you, you're going to figure it out. But um, you were saying the same thing. You were like, I, that is how I feel too. She's like, you were like, it's not like that. And I was like, no, you, to an extent, like it's it's so hard to just take a shower when you have a newborn mm-hmm. baby, you know, and to eat four meals a day, especially if you didn't have them cooked already, yeah. is not happening, mm-hmm. you know. So these things, it sounds ridiculous if you don't have a kid to hear that you couldn't even possibly take a shower in the day. It sounds like, oh my gosh, that is an eight minute activity. How could you yeah. not? But there's so many other things that take precedence over it. So, anyways, my point is, don't think that you're going to be better than everyone else. Take your take our word from it. Be prepared. Yes. Or have some people like you know bringing food to you or doing food meal delivery or something. And if you don't have friends and family that live near you, they can still contribute to the meal train by sending you like DoorDash and Uber mm-hmm. Eats, kinds of things, gift cards that you can use. You know, and obviously it's not 
the best in the world to eat out every meal, but you need to eat something. I don't care what it is. You need to be eating. This is, I think, the most important. It should be the top priority be above everything else. Like, I mean, baby sleep, I would say nutrition, then sleep. But I see the lack of this in every season of womanhood, um, but it is very, very important at this time. And I honestly think a big reason why I didn't experience a lot of postpartum anxiety and depression is because I always have and always will make this my number one priority. And I, you know that I do. You are really good at it. <laughs> because I have also, to. Because yes, I have to. have to. It is a necessity to. for me because I will crumble to the ground if I do not keep my blood sugar balanced and eat consistently. And so I have had to prioritize it. I don't have the luxury of not like it is non-negotiable in my existence. But because of that, I know it's possible. So although it's challenging, and I agree with you that you have to set things things up, don't assume that you're going to be cooking all of these meals like you're just not. So I did all of that prep. I had that all planned. um, And it was just my number one priority every day. I'm like, where's the food coming from? (laughs) What What are we doing here? And, you know, often women will be really good about it for like, yeah, say the first month or so. Mm-hmm. And then they're not thinking about, well, what is it going to be like when I'm four and five months postpartum? You still really, really, really need to be eating a lot or at least balance, eating frequently, eating well enough, little balanced snacks all the time, especially if you are breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. And this is not – and again, remember the postpartum depression anxiety stats. They happen a little bit later on. Yep. Not happening usually in that first month anyways. So we think about the moms going to the park and meeting their friends and da-da-da and they kind of like – didn't eat breakfast and then they mm-hmm. just drink coffee and then they have, have a, like bar. a bar in the car mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. you know, and this is going to add up because here's why this is what happens when your blood sugar drops, your body releases epinephrine, which is adrenaline and cortisol. Mm-hmm. Cortisol plus epinephrine equals anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> this is not a good feeling to be riding these hormones. They are there to like, well, first of all, the cortisol is there so that it can go to your liver and it can liberate glucose so it can stabilize your blood sugar because mm-hmm. blood sugar must be stable for your brain activity, for everything to have proper energy. And um, it just so happens that, you know, there's these other, this kind of fight or flight hormone that comes in so that you're sort of like, oh crap, I need to like go get some food, you know? And mm-hmm. I gotta, <laughs> but then mm-hmm. you're ramped up all day and you're in your sympathetic nervous system and you're, you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know why. And it can be subtle. It doesn't have to be the point where you're getting hangry. Mm-hmm. It's, it's blood sugar dips and drops as you're making milk. Even if you're not breastfeeding, you are still in this time of life now that's incredibly demanding from the sun up to the sundown. And food is something that you can control more than any of these other factors. Mm-hmm. And it must be a priority, like you're saying, like it, because sleep, who knows what's going to happen that night at right. sleep, but you can control what you put in your mouth. Yes. And it is absolutely imperative. Yep. So nourish yourself like you were pregnant and then some, or nourish yourself like your happiness, your livelihood, and your health depend on it because they literally do. So, Or just and- pretend you know, that your child is already eating solids and that you just eat those foods. <laughs> You know, because you're feeding your child. I think a lot of people forget that they have the baby and then they're like, oh, I'm back to like myself, like the baby's out of my body. And it's like, no, if you're choosing to breastfeed, then you are not just feeding yourself. You You are eating for two more than you ever have in your entire life. That's a good point. And your breast milk nutrition will change based on what you are eating. If you are eating well, it will be really jam packed, awesome breast milk. If you're not, it'll get by, but you know what I mean? Mm hmm. Um, In addition to this, continue to take your prenatal and especially your omega-3s. So omegas we know are very important for brain health and anxiety and depression. It's a huge dump of DHA to make a baby and a placenta, Um, EPA as well, but specifically DHA. These are the two, sorry, 
omega-3s mean <laughs> EPA and DHA. So they're two different branches of this one kind of arm. And uh, the DHA is really a huge loss. It really plays into baby's brain development and also mom's postpartum brain development or not development, but health. Reforming. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, reforming. Exactly. And kind of mm-hmm. repatching and repairing and putting some extra layers back on those nerves. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we need to be taking those. And same thing with the prenatal. Um, you know, I know that there's a controversy right now going on in some of the natural health worlds with taking prenatal supplements. And my point that I have to say here is that, yes, if you make eating healthy, your very top priority in your life, maybe it can be enough, but the topsoil is not like it was in ancient times. It takes years to be properly repleted in nutrients and minerals. Mm -hmm. And the way that we evolved or developed to eat when we were eating nose to tail, tail, we were eating all these organs and doing a lot of the things that the ancient cultures did with the pregnant women where they were eating a lot of the organs and drinking the raw milk from the cows that were eating the fresh little spring grasses that were very high in all these fat-soluble vitamins. And all of that information is great. And we should take that into play and we should really focus on diets. But it's different now. And mm-hmm. it's harder for most people, the general populace. I'm sure there's some that can get by with just diet. But I feel like I'm not going to take that risk and then end up depleted mm-hmm. when Although these synthetic vitamins, yes, they are synthetic, but there are ways to get the synthetic form that is the proper bioavailable form anyway. Why would you not choose that? Why would you? I mean, I don't know. This is the (laughs) other thing that I have to say about that is, you know, the way that we evolved to just have diet exactly like you said was a different world. And we did not have the toxins that we have in this world. And we did not have the stress that we have in this world. Both toxins and stress deplete nutrients at a level that would absolutely shock you. And I I just have run so many labs on patients. And I just personally, yes, if you lived on an island in Hawaii and you didn't interact with the world and you didn't have social (laughs) media and you grew all your own food and it was beautiful and it was like all, you know, bio beautiful soil and all of these things, maybe that is possible. But if you are a modern human in the modern world, I just think we need a little bit of help. And I think it's why so many people are depleted and why so many people have deficiency type of symptoms, including depression and anxiety. And yeah, it's just, there's, a lot more demands on our nutritional stores than there ever has been in history before. Yeah, that's a really good point. This And the stress thing can't be overemphasized and mm-hmm. it's coming at us from all angles, you know, mm-hmm. even if you feel like you live a pretty chill zen life. So yeah. anyways, that's our little PSA. Keep taking your prenatal. <laughs> and, and one last thing I want to say about omegas is I actually did a lot of research on this in preparation of creating the needed supplements is how powerful EPA, which is Typically, of the two, omegas is an anti-inflammatory. So DHA is more for the brain. EPA is more anti-inflammatory. There are a ton of studies and exciting information showing that EPA is actually very powerful at preventing and helping with postpartum depression. I think in large part because there is a strong inflammation root cause to depression. So another benefit to take your omegas. Great, great point. Yes. And if it's the inflammation, okay, what what other things cause inflammation? Stress mm-hmm. <laughs> and poor nutrient status. So if this is all very cyclical. Literally, I think about it as a peg wall, like a, a one of those peg walls that's those tool organizers, you know, mm. and stuck in each. You're like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <"Right>. <laughs> What's wrong with you? 
No, I'm just trying to imagine. I don't know what it is. I don't know what that is. That you're yeah, saying. you know what I mean? It's like Describe a wooden it. board and it has mm-hmm. all these little holes in it and you like stick tool, you stick like these metal prongs in it and you hang your tools. Come on. I'll send you a picture on okay. picture. <laughs> Okay, I can imagine it, maybe. Okay, anyways, I'm imagining. Just imagine the innards of a clock, of an old clock or a watch, or or just cogs in the wheel. Yes, okay. And they're all turning. Okay, well, what I was gonna say (laughs) on the pegboard wall was that there was all these cogs stuck in there, like the toys, like for kids. Mm, I don't know. Maybe mm -hmm. he's not old enough yet. But (laughs) you crank the wheel and all the cogs turn. Yes, and so it's like. It's a little this, it's a little this, it's a little mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. this, that, and the other, da, 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 da. Some of the things we can't control, like with the genetics or whatever, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. we can know that they're there and we can optimize our lifestyles so that they're not affecting us as much as they would be if we didn't know that they were there and yes. we just lived a willy-nilly lifestyle. Yeah. So, Love it. Anyways. Okay. So I just have a, to make a very special note here that those three things that I just talked about, anemia, thyroid disorders, and blood sugar regulation, all very much can affect bl- milk supply. They can cause low milk supply. Anemia in and of itself can cause low milk supply. Mm. Thyroid problems, specifically hypothyroid, can cause low milk supply. Blood sugar regulation, not eating enough, not having enough calories. What's your body going to do? Where are you going to make this milk from? It's not happening. So that can cause low milk supply, which is an independent factor. Having low milk supply or having breastfeeding issues is an independent factor on its own for postpartum depression and anxiety. Oh my gosh. It's also okay. obvious. Why are like industries, like what is with our girl? The medical system is so backwards. When we record this podcast, we need to each have like stress balls that we can just squeeze really hard. Okay. But also, also in addition to that, that that's an independent risk factor Breastfeeding women have significantly lower rates of postpartum depression and anxiety the entire time that they're breastfeeding. And the longer that they breastfeed for, the lower their risk rate goes on to be. Wow. I mean, are you kidding me? So it's like, this is so important. How many women are having their first baby? They had some sort of a birth trauma potentially, maybe not like the worst thing in the world, but it didn't go or they were really shocked or it was scary or something. Okay. Then they go and they have some breastfeeding problems and it's like, okay, it's not great, but they're like sort of doing it. They're chugging along. They're trying to like adapt to this new life. Their thyroid meanwhile is like tanking out and they'd have no idea this is happening. They already went into it a little bit anemic. Then they're trying to like live their life and do the best that they can. And they eat a lot in their first month. And then now they're like three or four months postpartum. They're trying to live into their life again, be this mom and this integrate their new personal identity. And all of these things biochemically are happening. And now their supply is starting to tank Mm -hmm. and they're maybe having to pump at work and they're losing their hair because that was what happens at three to four months postpartum. And that's kind of normal, but there is a level where it's too much. Anyway, then their supply starts to tank and then they're really anxious about that and they don't want to stop breastfeeding. And they're like, what is happening? And it's this chicken or the egg thing. And then now they're in full-blown de- postpartum depression at mm-hmm. you know four or five months or whatever. Oh, I don't know. <sighs> it it makes can me be so different. frustrated because I feel like there's so many people that this is happening to. And the, because there is such a lack of postpartum care and follow-up appointments, no one knows unless that woman is going to go and seek out the health 
help for herself. And like right. I said, with my own situation, I was a third year medical student. I felt like I knew more than the average Joe. And I had no idea mm-hmm. <laughs> that I was experiencing this mm-hmm. until it was over. I got married in that time. You guys, I don't even remember a lot of my wedding. Oh. I don't remember a lot of his first year. Like it's so sad. It is sad. It sucked. It totally sucked. And it's like, gosh, this just doesn't have to be this way. You know, mm-hmm. it was, it was crappy. So I just had to make a really big deal about that because <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> There is so many people that really want to breastfeed and there's so many reasons that can contribute to this idea of like low milk supply. Mm -hmm. And it just evolutionarily does not make sense that it would just be that, you know, for there is reasons sometimes. And Mm -hmm. so we need, or often, more often Mm -hmm. than not, there's a reason that we can get to the root cause of Mm -hmm. and fix it. And then you can have the breastfeeding relationship that you want. So I love it. You and I don't have any passion. We're just passionless (laughs) people. (laughs) Totally (laughs) affectless. Okay. Number four, sleep deprivation. So like I was saying earlier, some of these factors you don't have as much control over. There is some things you can do here, Mm -hmm. but Some babies sleep more than others. Some parents find it easier to fall asleep in those quick little windows, you know, an hour, two hours here and there all throughout the night as you're nursing or as they're waking up. Even if you're not nursing, you're still experiencing a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, So the lack of sleep puts you at a tenfold risk of of just depression in general. But now on top of everything else, of course, this is going to be a huge factor. It causes neurochemical changes in the brain over time, affecting specifically serotonin. So it is, yeah, of course, your body's fatigued and didn't recover and you didn't get rest. That's one level of it. But it also will slowly over time actually change the way that the biochemical reactions are happening in your brain. Mm-hmm. In a in a negative way, obviously. And so this is really tricky because you know, there's some things you can do. So for some families, co-sleeping does give them more sleep in that t- period of time because the baby will sleep better when closer to mom or can, you know, sort of latch throughout the night, depending on how old the baby is. Sometimes co-sleeping doesn't work for families, but it's something to consider and try. And I've heard over and over and over again from the people who it does help. Now, maybe like later on when mm-hmm. they have a toddler in their bed and that's really difficult, that can be an issue. But if you are at the point postpartum where you were like, I am ripping my hair out, what is happening? I am like a dead to the world. It can be an option that you tried to, and maybe, cause maybe, you know, you've had your baby in a bassinet away from you and the baby mm-hmm. just continues to wake up. There's also other things that we need to know are outside of the realm of normal. Babies who have like a colic, reflux, GERDY type presentation could probably use some support with body work, chiropractic mm-hmm. and cranial sacral. Maybe their latch sucks. Maybe their lip and tongue tied. Maybe their T12 L1 junction is out and needs to be adjusted by a chiropractor and can really help all their gas and tummy troubles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe their little immune system or not immune system, their little nervous system is all ramped up and they would really benefit from some craniosacral therapy and skin to skin and, you know, taking a bath with mom a couple times mm-hmm. a week and just like reintegrating into their bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Another little cool anthropological thing is that in a lot of societies, they think that babies who are like presenting as colicky, they don't have that word, obviously. But um, let me take a deep breath here. This is my <laughs> podcast go on. When I get more and more pregnant, I'm going to be- Oh my God. I will take over number five if you really want. Really out of breath. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> So what they say is that the baby hasn't come into their body yet. Oh. So again, this is like another spiritual thing, mm-hmm. but it sort of makes sense. And this obviously wouldn't be with like a three month old. This would be with like a pretty close newborn. 
where they, and I don't know all the, all the details. I wish I did, but something to the extent that they believe that the spirit of the baby has not really embodied into the body yet. And so they can kind of be in this in-between world and they can be very fussy. And so some cultures will have like ceremonies or rituals where they'll like call the baby spirit in and like fully bring it in. Cause they're like, this baby's not quite here yet and is causing like a real big ruckus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know, they report that it helps seems to help afterwards. So anyway, I just think that's kind of interesting to think about. Like my third was the the worst sleeper by far and her little immediate new life in the couple of first weeks, she just seemed so uncomfortable in her body. Like, Mm. And I'm not to say that she, her body hadn't, her spirit hadn't arrived. That wasn't mm-hmm. the vibe I got, but she did have this like kind of shaky, jittery, nervous, like she just felt, she just seemed very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. She really benefited from craniosacral therapy. Um, but man, she was the worst sleeper for sure. And with her postpartum between like six and 13 months, somewhere in there. So for about six months in the latter half of her first year. So a little later on, I definitely had some postpartum depression. Mm. Um, not exactly sure how <laughs> severe it was. I knew it was happening this time. I was very aware. And I was also, this is kind of the problem with depression sometimes is that, you know, it's happening and you don't care mm. and you don't have the care and the will and the motivation and the want to do anything about it. And that's kind of, I remember having those thoughts. I remember yeah. sitting on the couch and being like, this is, I'm not normal. I'm not myself. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd have freak outs about it and I would cry and I'd like talk about it with my husband and, or I'd even reach out to friends and be like, just so you guys know, I'm struggling. But I just, I really felt like there was nothing that I could do that was going to make it feel better. Mm-hmm. Like I woke up every morning feeling like I was trapped in prison. I, mm-hmm. I remember that feeling really clearly. Wow. Um, taking care of these three little kids <clears throat> who I love, but it's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, and I would be, I had been awake nursing five to seven times that night prior and every night that I ever mm-hmm. went to sleep. And I just felt like this is never going to change until enough time has gone on where she just stops doing this. Like yeah. that was my mindset. And I mean, and that is kind of the way it was for her. Like she was just very different. Yeah. Our attempts at sleep training her did not go well. And it was like, I sort of just knew I have to tough this out, but it sucked in its own right. That is one of the things, though, about depression that I just want to call to is that – and I had never experienced that before. And so now I really have a lot of compassion for people who are stuck in that place of just the lack of motivation to do anything about it Mm -hmm. because you're depressed. Like you don't feel – and it kind of also feels – even though logically I knew that it would help, it kind of feels like it's not going to help. Yeah. It's like – it's so mean. It's so cruel, really. I know. But anyways. Okay. So there is some ways to get more sleep here. We're just going to outline a couple of them. This is not an end-all be-all list, but yeah. just some things that maybe you haven't thought about if you're if you're currently struggling. So getting morning light for the do first you, 10 minutes. Do you want me to go over this? You can okay, sure. <laughs> you can look like I okay. drink some water. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So some things to help us sleep. Like she said, getting morning light, 10 minutes, you know, go outside. I know not everybody has sunlight early in the morning, but get outside as soon as you can. Get sunlight on your eyes. It just helps with the circadian rhythm. Avoiding screens and phones after sundown, the blue light from these will greatly increase your cortisol and block your melatonin, which is the opposite of what you need to sleep. You need high melatonin and low cortisol. Um, Like you already mentioned, co-sleeping works for some, but then the flip side of that, which I want to bring up is I think there's a lot of pressure in the natural health world to co-sleep. And for me, co-sleeping with my daughter would have meant I didn't get a lot of sleep because I'm such a light sleeper and I wake up to every single little thing. So if you're 
whatever works for you and your family, but don't feel pressured from the outside to do one or the other. Do what works for you. Because for me to get the best sleep was my daughter not sleeping in the same bed with us. And so just knowing that whatever is going to get you the most sleep is the most important. Yeah. Um, And same, just onto that too, I didn't co-sleep either. I do mm want to co-sleep with this fourth one just because I'm bound and determined, hell-bent to <laughs> learn how to sideliners. Um, and because I know it's for sure my last baby, who knows if we'll actually do it. But I never co-slept either. They, you know, we both used co-sleepers where they're right mm-hmm. next to you, but they were never like in the bed with us. And yeah, I also <clears throat> just couldn't relax when yeah. the baby was ever actually in my bed. Right. So yeah. No um, hard feelings there. Yeah. So getting help with nighttime care Uh, either a partner or a night doula or a mother or a sister or somebody to come and just give you a break, even just, you know, one day a week or something where you can kind of sleep for a more solid chunk. Mm -hmm. Um, Naps in the daytime. I know a lot of people are like, I can't nap. I have to do the dishes and clean the house. And it's like, no, you don't. Like (laughs) napping is the most important thing. This is me personally. I think again, why I didn't have postpartum depression and anxiety because I prioritize. I'm a great napper, but you know what? I wear earplugs and I wear an eye mask and I turn on a sound machine and you just, you know, do the best you can. Even if you just lay there not sleeping to me, I think it's better to rest your body and your mind than to be like, Oh, I can't nap. I need to go like, you know, do things with my body and exhaust myself. Um, so that's really important. NSDR, you can probably speak to that. Maybe yeah, a little so that's more. kind of what you were just saying too is non-sleep deep rest. Oh, so yes. even if you don't <laughs> fall asleep, it's okay. Like you are still – and there's actually a lot of really good studies. This is like Huberman Lab stuff. He like loves to talk about non-sleep deep rest, which is also just called Yoga Nidra. Mm. doesn't really have anything to do with yoga, but it is – that is the other name of it um, developed in India is just this idea of a – it's a specific kind of – meditation, getting into a meditative state where you've changed your brainwave state. And although you are not asleep, you are definitely awake, but you are in this kind of altered state of consciousness. And being in that state for 30 minutes is as restful as four hours of sleep. Some studies are showing. I know. Isn't that nuts? You have to kind of do it, right? You have to get into it. You can't just lay there and like think about your day and be anxious (laughs) and stuff. So there's some some YouTube – you know, meditations that you can listen to. And mm-hmm. it does probably take some practice. I'm sure I haven't actually done it, but I really want to. And that can just be an option when you're like, I probably won't be able to actually fall completely asleep. So that's the way I am. I feel like I'm not a somebody who can get there in the mm-hmm. daytime. Even when I was so sleep deprived, I would try and I just couldn't actually fall asleep. What I should have probably done was really attempt and get good at NSDR. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, but I did know that that was a thing. Again, I just didn't feel motivated to learn how to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's NSDR. And then the last one here is the sleep training of some form. We're not for cry it out. Although I have to say, I do think that there's still a time and a place for almost everything. And if the mother is going to, is suicidal, is going to hurt somebody or something, herself, her baby, because of the level that it's getting to, then, you know, a couple of nights of cry it out might be the better option there. Mm-hmm. So I know that a lot of people are probably going to come back at that at me for that. And I just think is a dead baby better than an alive baby that cried for a couple of nights. And yeah, maybe they have some trauma. Mm-hmm. I, I think so. Um, Mm -hmm. this is really extreme and I know we just kind of got really dark, but I, this is a thing you guys, Mm -hmm. like people do this, they do horrible things. Their brains are not right. They are not themselves. They are not sleeping. They are in a different state. And sometimes to save the family, the marriage, the other kids, the themselves, it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. I obviously would choose trying some other form of a sleep training before that. That is the Mm -hmm. farthest, farthest extreme, but, um, you know, there is a stigma now that's like, 
you're the worst person on the freaking face of the planet if you do cry out with your baby. And it's like, I, there are people I think that really needed that for their own survival. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, we got to welcome any and all things just like in the very specific situation where mm -hmm. it would be appropriate, but in an appropriate sort of sleep training method that I think works well for a lot of people that does involve some crying, but not a lot and mm -hmm. is pretty popular is called taking care of babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I it's did that with taking, my daughter. Yeah. Same. And I've done abridged versions of it with some of my kids and it's, it's not taking care of babies. It's taking Kara. Like <laughs> her name is Kara. Yeah. It's cute. <laughs> babies. Yeah. It's a cute, cute little play on words. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, she's got this little program. She outlines it for you. She explains things for you. And, um, a lot of babies respond well to that. There's mm -hmm. lots of other kinds of methods and you can even just start to teach little six week old, eight week old babies, gentle kind of sleep learning behaviors. Mm -hmm early on too. It doesn't need to be this very, very stressful thing, but there is some information about sleep and, and babies that sometimes parents just don't get because who's teaching this kind of thing besides right. people like us, like following wake windows. Mm -hmm. So when your baby's awake during the day, as they age, they're going to have different lengths of their wake windows, which is the appropriate time that they can be awake before they need to go back to sleep for a nap. Right. And following the wake windows during your daytime really impacts the way that they sleep in the nighttime. Mm -hmm. And so- Anyways, there's just a lot of this kind of information. Looking into supports, reach out to somebody. There are sleep specialists who can help you with it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. lack of support. Do you want me to take this on? <laughs> sure. Well, let's just kind of tackle it together. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So number five is lack of support with this massive transition. And this might be more true for some people than others, but there is a huge overwhelm, lots of learning curves. There's big hormonal shifts. There's so much happening, right? I mean, it would be a lot for your body to just go through the hormonal shifts postpartum without having been handed a brand new baby that's crying and that you're also trying to breastfeed. And, you know, there's a learning curve with breastfeeding. I think a lot of people think, oh, I just put the baby on the boob. And for some people, it maybe works like that. But, you know, I've learned so much from you in, in that it's just like anything else. We have to learn these things. Um, we only have or I guess you can talk about the birth trauma too, recovery, like chronic pain. Or I know for me, you know, post C-section, I didn't have a vaginal birth, so I don't know that. But it's a huge transition, again, to like be breastfeeding, having a major abdominal surgery, feeling in tons of pain, having to take pain meds, you know, doing all of these things and not sleeping and having a new baby. It's just a lot. It's a lot. And if you have you know, anything else going on in your life where maybe you're fighting with your partner or you don't have a partner or you're just not feeling supported, it can just be too much. And mm -hmm. at some point we all have our tipping points, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And I feel like it's a very common one for a lot of people to reach that tipping point. In addition to that, or or on the flip side, or rather, some people have like wonderful blissful postpartums. And I don't want this ep episode to freak anybody out yeah. who hasn't been there yet. Um, this is the, you know, on the abnormal side of things or the like pathology side of things where there's lots of stuff that we can do. Although we've been, I, you know, I've been there at least. And I, but then I've also had one amazing postpartum that mm -hmm. kind of more was similar to yours where I just was in this like bubble of bliss and I was yeah, so happy. I had a great postpartum. So know that this isn't, but I yeah. prioritize sleep. My yes. husband, I would wake up in the morning and feed her and he would take her and I would sleep for the next two hours until he had to go to work every single day. I prioritized really food. I had lots of support. So like I did all the things that you're talking about. So good it didn't job. just like, I woke up without doing any of this and had a good postpartum. Like yeah. I don't think I would have if I, I, I had a long time to prepare. <laughs> yeah. You, you know? did a good job. All, you... all of my, all the people who came before me, I learned a lot from them. Absolutely. And even, um, you know, 
despite having C-section recovery as well, mm-hmm. you had a really, really good time. And I've had one really good time and I've had one medium time and then one bad time, you know, mm-hmm. so kind of all the things. But the if you have birth trauma, there is really strong correlation to having postpartum depression. Mm-hmm. Anxiety also inc- increases, but specifically postpartum depression. So if that is part of your story, there is ways to mitigate process and move that through you so that it's not just stuck and sitting. Um, and then, yeah, recovery. So I was just speaking with a woman the other day that had, she tore, she got stitches, but then she had a complication with the stitches and something internally where there was like a hematoma and Mm. it's very painful and difficult. And, you know, then I've heard women also who've because of the tears, the fourth degree tear, they were told that they could never have a vaginal birth again. And that the healing from it was so horrific. They went on to have cesareans and the recovery was much easier with the cesarean. Mm. Um, So, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen in recovery. For me with my recovery, with my first, it was my nipple trauma. Mm -hmm. My nipples were just absolutely shredded, you know? So there's a lot of things in chronic pain. We know chronic pain is Mm -hmm. an independent risk factor for depression. Yeah. So there's a lot going on here. Then there's this whole fact that there, we don't have anything beyond the six-week follow-up. There are some midwives that do them more frequently. But mm-hmm. you guys, six weeks, like nobody knows what's going on at six weeks. And you know what the six-week clearance is for is so that you can have sex again. I know, cool. which is insane. Right. <laughs> it's like, no. Can't wait. And I know there's a lot of people <laughs> that do and want to have sex. And that's great. Good for you. <laughs> and it's not, I would say, more common to want yeah. to have sex at that point. And it's also sort of a slap in the face. Like, we're going to ignore all the other things that are going on in you. And yeah. now you're just, you can have sex again. Yeah. Cool. Your, your husband or your partner can have sex with you now. It's like, yeah, it's cool. I just, what about me? Yeah. <laughs> what about anything else? Like, I'm it was sad. In, yes. And sometimes they'll give you a postpartum depression screening. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I said, it's not usually happening at six weeks. Mm-hmm. It needs to be happening later. So yeah. anyways, then there's this whole personal identity crisis, you know, fitting in or mourning your old life. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that this is something that like, you know, your population, Leah, doesn't maybe have as much because the infertility world, I feel like when you get a baby in your arms, like you mm-hmm. have been wanting this for so long. Mm-hmm. And so there's something really kind of different about that vibe. And I've, mm-hmm. I've heard that story again and again, or people who've had losses, who've had miscarriages before when mm-hmm. they get that baby, they could give a crap about how hard the postpartum is because they're so grateful. Not to say that the people who didn't have to work hard to get pregnant are ungrateful. It's just that mm-hmm. I think there is a different vibe when you've been wanting it for so long. Yeah. So integrating though, having a baby and the lack of your freedom is challenging. It's yeah. a different gig, especially if maybe it was an unplanned pregnancy, you weren't mm-hmm. really ready yet, or it just happened all kind of so quick or, you know, whatever. It can be like this whole thing where you're just really uh, a stark change from the way it was before. And and even people who struggle with infertility can still experience postpartum depression and anxiety. I have patients like that too, where then they feel guilty and they don't want to say it because it's like, I should be grateful oh. for this baby because I've been trying so hard and yeah. they don't ask for help because they feel like they should be grateful. And they might just think, oh my gosh, this is just hard. It's just hard being a mom and not realizing that they actually have postpartum depression and they just feel guilt to identify it that way. So there's the whole spectrum, right? Anyone who's not happy and doesn't feel normal and is not in a normal state, which again, you can talk about some of the ways to get support of really helping identify is what I'm going through normal or not, um, regardless of how you got there, I think really important. 
Yeah, absolutely. So some ways to get some support, just another (laughs) sort of list of ideas, not complete is to reach out to your local friends and family. And if you don't have that, some maybe some organizations that you belong to, like a church or some sort of a community group, and ask them for, hey, you know, I'm I'm maybe like a little mother's helper or some cute teenage girl that wants to come help. Or can you guys set up a meal train for me? I'm really struggling making food. Mm-hmm. People are so one thing I learned from my old therapist that I had in San Diego, who I just love so much, is that people are usually very honored to participate and help and contribute to anything revolving around the the birth or life of a new baby. Mm-hmm. Like for them to be able to take food and drop it off to you, they would be honored to mm-hmm. help in that situation. And if they're not, then okay, fine, whatever. But it's worth the ask. Mm-hmm. The worst thing you're going to get is no. And the best thing you're going to get is a lot of food to help you stay mm-hmm. regulated and stable <laughs> through this time. So it is tricky and we're not really used to reaching out for help like that in our culture these days. But we have to remember where we came from, which is this is when it was very normal. Yep. So then there's organizations as well. There's Postpartum Support International, and there's usually a postpartum chapter in every state where you can get some additional kind of supports. If you are nursing, boob groups or Lelechi type support lactation groups are amazing mm-hmm. <laughs> for getting all kinds of support, not just breastfeeding support, but to just go and meet and talk with other moms and be around other women and not be isolated and alone in your house or to hear the struggles of other people and to kind of get some perspective and feel heard and like you're not alone. I think mm-hmm. that is, can be just life-changing. Yeah. Then of course there's like face- Facebook and Instagram groups where you can meet people and chat with them again. Women are hardwired for communication and mm-hmm. for uh, connection and friendship. Mm-hmm. And early motherhood can be really, really lonely. Mm-hmm. You're just sitting in your bed, like nursing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, I, we just would, that was just never the way that it was going to be, you know, okay, maybe your mom or your, you know, in-laws or something come and help you or a friend comes and helps you for what a week. And then they're mm-hmm. gone and mm-hmm. we're alone again. And it's just this period of time where I think we need each other more than ever. So yeah. that is huge. Postpartum doulas as well. So a postpartum doula in case people are like, what the heck? I thought doulas were birth doulas. Yeah. Most of the time they are. When you say the word doula, what you mean is the support person who comes to you and helps you with your birth. A postpartum doula comes to you and helps you with your postpartum. Mm -hmm. So they don't really help with your baby. They're not going to like hold your baby. Although in the middle of the night, that can be part of the contract. Yeah. But they will cook and clean Mm -hmm. and okay, maybe hold the baby so you can take a shower or a nap or something like that. But they're not going to like go and take your baby away from you. They're not like a nanny. Yeah. Yeah. They're more like taking care of you. Yeah. Which is exactly (laughs) what you need. (laughs) Exactly. And now if you aren't postpartum yet, or you don't have a kid yet, you're pregnant, you're preparing for this, some ways to kind of get ahead of some of these issues is to talk with your partner and the mm-hmm. people around you, your support circle, your friends and family who are going to be there about what your desires are for your postpartum support and what you want it to look like and that you do want a meal train. You are going to be doing these things. And to validate too, show them this episode of two doctors talking about how important this is. Because sometimes I think people think, oh, well, you know, like my husband just thinks like I should you know, go back to work at six weeks or da, 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 whatever. And it's like, okay, if we have to do that for financial reasons, okay. But there is a big cultural shift that we need to, you know, no, no hard feelings on him in particular, but that's wrong. That's just mm-hmm. not the way that that's, that's not true. <laughs> it's not yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. And we need to be getting the word out basically. And so if somebody is having a hard time understanding that, then you can point to these resources so that they really are like, oh, wow. Okay. Actually, this is the way that you need to be supported in this period of time. Again, setting up a meal train or have a friend run that for you. 
um, have a therapist already on board or some kind of a resource like postpartum link. So on Instagram, it's at postpartum link and it is a postpartum therapy resource hmm. made by Dr. Alice Pickering, who is an awesome account to follow for everything to do with postpartum mental health. And she, you know, this can be a specific access or um, hookup basically for you to find therapists that are trained to help with postpartum issues in women. Mm -hmm. So, and then also, yeah, knowing that there's postpartum doulas. So maybe you try to find one in your city and find and interview them and see if that would be a good fit. Because like we talked about in the breastfeeding episode too, being ahead of the curve on some of this stuff and contacting these people before it happens will serve you huge Mm -hmm. in the moment. Yeah. And (laughs) I also think, you know, my nanny, I call her my nanny, but she does so much more for us. She helps cook and clean and do laundry and all of that. And she was a a mom in our neighborhood whose kids are in their twenties and she was let go during COVID from her current job. And she was just open to kind of like whatever work. And she's wonderful. She's just like having another woman. And yes, we're blessed enough to be able to pay someone to help us. But if you're in that situation, um, you know, it doesn't even have to be someone who's a designated like postpartum doula. It could just be a person in your neighborhood, maybe who's retired or somebody who just, you know, you would be shocked at how many opportunities exist if you just kind of put it out there and let people know what you're looking for. You know, there's a lot of women whose kids are, have left the nest and they would love to come and just like cook and clean and like support you, you know, absolutely. depending on their situation, it might not even be that expensive. Like some people just really want to get out of the house and help and like, yeah, you could pay them, but you know, it doesn't have to break the bank for like what you would be getting, you know, the benefit and the value you'd be getting from that. Yeah, absolutely. And similarly, if you have extended family that maybe you don't even, you don't stay that in contact with, but it can be a new baby can be a way to sort of rebring the family back together as well. And just asking your aunts or whoever, can you come hold the baby for an hour so that I can shower and mm-hmm. just have a minute to myself? Or I know a lot of this just maybe people are rolling their eyes to it, but I also just want to give that idea out to the few people that might be like, yeah, you know what, actually. I can do that. And that would be really helpful because mm-hmm. these little things add up. So yep. what to do if you think that you're having postpartum depression and anxiety and you haven't been officially helped or diagnosed by anyone yet. Mm-hmm. So first of all, tell people, do not keep this in, do not keep this to yourself and know that this silly stigma that if you are having any kind of a mental health issue postpartum m- means that you don't love your baby or that you're not a good mom is BS. Okay. That is not something, I I don't know where that came from, but I even felt it myself, you know, a little bit. And it's like some kind of a cultural thing that we've made up in our minds and it's perpetuated and it causes nothing but damage. So let's get rid of that. Um, And actually know also that the, the feeling of feeling like you're not necessarily in love with your baby or that you're not a good mom is a sign of postpartum Mm -hmm. depression. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. those are symptoms. Um, So tell people, your close friends, your partner, your doctor. So then when you go and you speak with your doctor, have them run the labs that we've discussed in this podcast before you do something like get on an antidepressant. Because if you're anemic or you're hypothyroid, an antidepressant is not going to fix the root cause of your problems. Mm -hmm. And they will probably just perpetually get worse until maybe you have to go up on your medication. And do you see how like Mm -hmm. the root cause is not being dealt with? Right. Um, So and then if, if everything is fine, you're not anemic the thyroid is fine, you're eating, you feel supported, you're still feeling really badly. Antidepressants have a time and a place. There are other things though to do. We would suggest working with an ND to talk about some of the other different different neurotransmitter support that can be given. Um, 
methylation support, nervine herbs, and then homeopathics too. I feel oh, homeopathy is yes. the best. I feel homeopathy is really it really shines in mm-hmm. the postpartum period because again, a lot of this is this like energetic mm-hmm. state shift. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much transition. Okay, like gosh, I'm getting a like a visual that I just cannot possibly explain. <laughs> the transition of having a baby and closing that spiritual openness and gap. The placenta now gone, the fall, the cascading fall of hormones, the increase in demands and on your mind your mind, body and soul and heart in taking care of a new baby that you love so much and is so tough and you're learning all these things, all of these transition points must go perfectly smoothly. <laughs> and if they don't and you get stuck somewhere, homeopathy can be the thing to unstick unstick you. Oh, that was so beautifully said. Thanks. That was really good. <laughs> Thanks. It's so true. And I worked on a couple or I was in shift with a, on a couple of homeopathy shifts in clinic where we had postpartum women. And it was like the mm-hmm. most exciting thing ever to me because it was exactly what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And this woman who'd had a depression her whole life. So like 23, 25 years, something like that of depression. She'd had two kids really far apart. She had like a teenager and then like a two-year-old. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. Like a six-month-old. Mm-hmm. Two-year-old or teenager and a six-month-old. She'd had postpartum depression with the teenager. She was having postpartum with the six-month-old. And we ended up finally coming upon sepia, which is mm-hmm. a very, very kind of classic stereotypical remedy for postpartum things. Yep. But that was the one for her. We were we were distinguishing that between Natmer and sepia. Mm-hmm. And they have a couple of like really big distinguishers. And I was this was a big learning event for me as a doctor in how to ask the right pri- the right question to get the patient to answer you. Yep. And it was something I'm probably never gonna forget. Anyways, we gave her sepia. She came back in the next appointment completely different person, completely different person. And we followed her for another 12 weeks. Okay. It wasn't Mm -hmm. just like that one time and she never had felt depressed again. She literally said, and she was a very kind of, I have, I sometimes interpret people who are really quiet as like being mad at me. (laughs) This is my own problem. (laughs) And She had that kind of a a personality and an Mm -hmm. affect. I mean, and she was struggling with depression. So like, of course, but I remembered thinking like, does this woman not like me? You know, whatever. And she came in and she just said it so matter of fact, like, because that was the way her personality was. She was just like, I have no depression at all. <laughs> like, I, I feel completely happy and normal and I have not felt like this for 25 years. Oh my God. Homeopathy is my very favorite thing. And you know, they're attacking it. They're trying to take it away. And I know. if you see anything, you guys, about like signing petitions or doing anything to protect homeopathy, it is the safest, most effective, most beautiful, magical medicine in the whole world. And I love it so much. And it really does. It can, if you get the right remedy, it doesn't mean every remedy works for you, but if you get the right one, it can literally change your life. One thousand percent. Find the petition, please do it for me. Mm -hmm. Do it for me, Leah. (laughs) Okay. So then, I mean, like I, just to wrap it up, the postpartum link or a therapist locally or a counselor, somebody who can help you. And, you know, I know, sorry. There's some stigma around therapy too, but it's it can be amazing and life-changing. Mm-hmm. And then just knowing that you're not alone and that you can reach out to people who care and your absence would be greatly missed and you are worthy and enough and this is temporary, you'll get through it, but it sucks when you're in the moment and I totally feel you and there is things that can be done. And mm-hmm. so all this to say, postpartum mental health is very, very, very important and Mothers are kind of coming into the forefront. I feel like maybe it's just the way that 
because of our work, it feels mm-hmm. like it's happening. More and more people are talking about this. Um, I think one day we will be like the most important people <laughs> because we are literally creating and taking care of and making the next generation, which if we're looking at things with a 10,000 foot view and in the long term, is the future and is is the most important thing. And yeah. so we're, we're here for you. We've got you. I hope this episode was helpful and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the healthy as a mother podcast. In order for other women to hear this information, please leave a review with Apple podcasts, subscribe and send to a friend who could benefit from this content. We're so excited to share more on becoming and being a mother next time. And remember a healthier future starts now and it starts with you. Please remember that the ideas and views presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for medical care of any kind, including the diagnosis or treatment of any illness or disease. Consult with your provider before integrating this information into your own care plan. Now go have a wonderful day. You've got this.